we saw this guy just walking down the trail all by himself, kind of hobbling around, no skis. And he just lifts up his shirt and there's a <laughs> a branch the size of my forearm that had impaled him. And it was like coming out of his belly button. Avalanches aside, it's a dangerous place. Dark Starts Backcountry Splitboarding Podcast is supported by Phantom Snow Industries. Join the revolution and go higher, lighter, further, and faster. Visit their website at phantomsnow.com or visit ours at darkstarts.ca for more info. This episode is supported by our friends at Cardiff Snowcraft, leading the way with premium, durable, and innovative splitboards. If you're exploring the mountains in search of deep, untracked snow, you're one of us. We invite you to experience Cardiff. Find them at cardiffsnow.com and seek out your stand-in-high-places moment with Cardiff Snowcraft. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 97 of Dark Starts, your backcountry splitboarding podcast. This week, Maxwell and I are talking with McKinley Talty, coordinator of the Know Before You Go program at the Utah Avalanche Center in Salt Lake City. It was out of pure love of the backcountry that led McKinley to the study of snow science at Montana State University and eventually to the state of Utah, where today his passions are to guide and educate users of the backcountry. In this episode, McKinley talks with us about the Know Before You Go program and his experiences as a splitboarder. It was pretty evident that McKinley loves to do what he does, and we loved learning about it, and we hope that you do too. So sit back and enjoy this chat with McKinley Tulte. All right, we're dropping in with McKinley Tulte, a.k.a. McDendrite. Mac, how you doing, my dude? I'm good. Just walked in the door uh, from teaching an avalanche class today up at Brighton. Uh, it was pretty cold. <laughs> so sorry if my face is a little bit red, but uh, yeah, it feels like the start to a good winter. Yeah, it was, a, it was a cold one in the Wasash today, that's for sure. I'm glad it opened up though. I, I was expecting to be snowy and cloudy the whole time, but 10 a.m., bluebirds guys. I know, that was a beautiful thing to see, the sun poking out. Thanks for coming on, man. Really appreciate having you out here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Been a long-time listener. First-time caller. <laughs> there you go. Like, I need to be a radio host or something. <laughs> <laughs> Spinning the hits from the 90s and before. Hey, man, so uh, let's uh, let's get into a little bit about who you are. Uh, yeah, so I am the Know Before You Go coordinator for the Utah Avalanche Center. I've been working for the UAC. This will be my third season. Um, and in addition to coordinating no before you go presentations. I also teach on snow education forum. Uh, and then I also split my week, uh, between Salt Lake and up in Ogden, Utah. I'm a snowcat, snowmobile, split board, ski guide, um, for this ranch called monument snowcat skiing. That's a lot of hats. Yeah. That keeps me busy. <laughs> no doubt. That's good. That's good. Uh, you don't hail from Utah originally though, do you? Where are you from originally? No, I, uh, I grew up in central New York state. Uh, seems like everyone I meet from Utah is, is from the East coast. Um, <laughs> I used to feel ashamed of saying I was from the East coast when I moved out West, <laughs> but, uh, I've, I've learned that everyone here is from the East. So yeah, I grew up in central New York state and then, uh, I moved West, uh, right after high school, like pretty much a month after I graduated. Um, wow. I lived in, uh, Moab, Utah to start off. And then I moved up to steamboat Springs, Colorado. Um, and then after that started going to school, 
uh, ended up at Montana State University up in Bozeman, uh, where I really started to like cut my teeth in the backcountry in a formal way. Um, when I was in Steamboat, I was you know <laughs> ducking ropes, getting to the to the backcountry the wrong way. Um, and then after my time in Bozeman, I moved down to Salt Lake right during the COVID shutdowns, and uh, been here ever since. Yeah. I, you know, I know what you mean about the East coasters and being out West. I mean, I love it ever since I've been out West for sure. Coming out from the East. Um, couldn't stand the heat and humidity out there. Love the, the mountains and the climate out here. That's for sure. Yeah. It's tough to leave. Yeah, no doubt. Right. I went to college in Florida and when I was down there, most of the people that I knew were from the Northeast as well. All us <laughs> hockey players playing roller hockey in parking lots. Right? <laughs> Ice was so expensive I'm, otherwise. But. <laughs> I've been trying to get my younger brother to move out. He, he uh, moved to Lake Tahoe for a summer and was going to stay the winter. And just he, he had lived in Vermont before. And for some reason, Vermont just grabbed him. He, he can't leave it. He moved back. And he, I don't think he's leaving anytime soon. But Vermont's pretty sweet, too. Like-minded people, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. So how did you get into snowboarding? Like how long have you been snowboarding? Did you start snowboarding when you were back East? Obviously I'm going to guess that that was the case, but, uh, lay that on us. How did that start for you? Yeah, I started, um, it was all thanks to my parents really. Um, I can't remember when, like the first time we went skiing was, but I think it was actually in steamboat when I was about four and they brought me out there and, uh, I, I immediately wanted to snowboard, but my dad said, you know, no, you need to ski for a couple of years. And then, uh, I think I, I got a job just to buy my first board cause, <laughs> um, just to make that transition a few years later. But, uh, yeah, I just grew up riding like the icy Catskills of New York. Um, we had a little hill about an hour North of us. It was called a butternut <laughs> and they had two lifts and one side of the mountain was just like family skiing. And the other side of the mountain had some little bit of steeper terrain and then a big terrain park, which was like where I was at, uh, with my brother, just riding park. And then I got into border cross and did that on the East coast and, uh, actually got pretty into border cross for a while there. I, uh, <clears throat> in, in New York, it's, it's a really small community. So you're racing against the same 10 people every single race. And, uh, my first year I, I just did terrible. The second year, you know, I learned how to wax and, uh, um, did some more training and I ended up going to nationals a couple of times, uh, until an injury kind of took me out of border cross, uh, in, I think it was my junior year of high school. But even just, I remember from like middle school on, like snowboarding was always going to be a thing, um, whether that was on the East coast or the West coast, but, uh, I made the jump to the West coast as soon as I could. I love, uh, I love the rebellion. Dad's making me ski. I'm going to get a job so I can buy my own snowboard. <laughs> so I can stand sideways. Screw you, dad. Um, <laughs> you know, as a, as a kid growing up a skier, um, I didn't, I'm not going to say I made, I've got four kids who all snowboard and I didn't make them all ski. I kind of just bought like a really tiny set of skis and a tiny snowboard. And I put them on both and kind of let them choose. You know, which one felt more comfortable for you? What do you want to do? And I was telling, telling that story today about my daughter when she first started skiing. She scared the shit out of me because she would, she had that, uh, she had, well, that ignorant bliss thing that we were talking about before we got onto the, the episode here. 
where she just didn't know what the dangers were. So she just picked the straightest line down the hill <laughs> and just pointed her tips towards the river and just went, you know, and I couldn't go fast enough to chase her and just afraid she was going to end up in the river. Right. Um, but now that kid has competed in border cross and, and slope style on the, uh, kind of sort of on the national level up here in Canada. So, um, so she, yeah, she became a snowboarder pretty quick and she loves it. And she coaches now and she's an instructor and does all that kid stuff. So, uh, love it. Love it. All my kids decided to go snowboarding eventually took my son the longest. He loved his skis for the longest time. So glad to hear it, man. Glad to <laughs> hear it. So rare that you, What's that? It's rare. You'll hear someone going from a board to, or from a ski to a board. Usually it's the other way around. Well, yeah, that's, how right? I, oh, I, that's how I got started. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, uh, growing up as a kid, there were no snowboards when I was a kid and it was skiing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, so, well, there were snowboards, but they were the fringe minority for sure. You weren't really seeing a lot on the hill. Mono skis was the closest we got. Right. <laughs> uh, and like feet side by side on one big wide plank going down a hill, like, which just looked like suicide to me. Like, who would ever want to do something <laughs> like that? Um, but it wasn't until my older years till I found snowboarding. And then I was just like, yeah, there was no stopping me. You know, I've got that addictive mentality when there's something that I want to do, then nothing's going to hold me back and it's not going to get in my way and I'm going to get it done. And I'm going to do whatever I can do to get my hands on that stuff and do it. So, uh, that's how it was for me for snowboarding. Everybody knows who's listening to this podcast. I didn't start till I was 32 and I haven't stopped since. Right. So, uh, 22 years of snowboarding now do the math folks. That's how old I am. <laughs> Um, but yeah, love it. Love it. So what about, so you, you got into snowboarding, doing some border cross, which I love. I love border cross. It's one of the most fun things to do for sure. Um, any slalom tracks or border cross for me is one of the fun. I like keeping my board on the snow. I'm not much one of those guys in the air spinning around and doing all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but what got, uh, what got you into splitboarding? How did that happen for you? Did it start back East or is it something that you found when you came out West? It kind of, the seed was planted when I was back East for sure. I think when I was a senior in high school, I decided, uh, I wasn't going to go to college right away. I was going to take at least a year and, uh, decided I was going to move to the mountains. So I took that board across board I had, it was like the super stiff Nidecker and I took a circular saw to it and just cut it right down the middle. And, uh, I bought a Vole DIY, uh, hardware kit where you just you drill into the base and, set up all the hardware and it was the jankiest thing in the world. <laughs> I took it for like a tiny little walk in the snow back in New York and, uh, even just riding down like a tiny shrub filled hill. Um, I was like, this is awesome. Like I can go anywhere I want. <laughs> and then, yeah. um, my first like real, real tour. I remember I moved to Moab, uh, as a bike mechanic and it was about a week before I was going to move up to steamboat for the winter. And it was just torrential downpour in the desert for like three days. Like I had just gotten off the white rim and, uh, I was like, man, this place really can release some water when it wants to. And woke up one morning and the clouds parted and I looked up at the LaSalle's and it was just covered in white, which actually how the LaSalle's got their names, the mountains of salt, like back in the way, way wow. back when people thought it was just salt up there cause it was the desert, but no, it was snow and, uh, drove up my up there with my Subaru, just solo, got it super stuck. And, uh, just, I was like, well, I can deal with this later and walked up the hill 
uh, rode Haystack Mountain, which if anyone's familiar with Moab, Haystack Mountain is just a pile of like car-sized sharp boulders. And it was like the first snow they'd gotten all year. So destroyed the board. <laughs> like I hit so many rocks on the way down, but got back to the car, got it unstuck, went back to Moab. A week later, I was moving up to Steamboat thinking like, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. <laughs> nice. Nice. So the dream was born and never yeah. turned back. Just the feeling of like being able to go wherever you want. Like there's no trails. There's nothing. Just wherever it looks good. I know it's like ever since I started splitboarding, it's kind of, it's almost like resorts. What? Like I, I, the luster for resorts I've lost. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's nice to be able to, you know, get on a lift and get to the top of something massive quickly and then be able to hit some side hits and ride down some stuff. But like, kind of like we were mentioning before, you know, I'm not a big fan of the crowds. You know, I don't like the big crowds. And I, that's one of the things I love about the backcountry the most. In fact, probably one of my favorite parts of a splitboard trip or tour would be, um, would be the tour up. You know, I love how quiet and peaceful it is and getting that, you know, and then I love getting scared shitless when I'm at the top and then <laughs> dropping in and, and then enjoying the peace of that, you know, that, uh, glistening ride down. Right. And just listening to the ice crystals hit the edge of the board. Fucking yeah. amazing. I love it. Yeah. I, and like I said, with the addictive personality, man, I just, you can't hold me back. I just want to keep doing as much as possible. Sweet. So, uh, so that Nidecker took you some places. What was your next board after that? I mean, when, uh, when did you get a real snowboard or split board? Like when did you, man, really... I milked that thing for so long. Like, uh, <laughs> I used it that entire winter in steamboat, just going on quick little tours through the backcountry gates. And, uh, I think the first board I got after that was uh, a Solomon split. Uh, cause they, I I've worked in shops like throughout middle school all the way through college right so i always had a deal with solomon through their shop program um and you know i was always kind of strapped for cash and that was kind of the best best deal i got and i it rode great i rode that thing for maybe four seasons and uh i actually i i gave it to a friend of mine who's a, a pro rider who, whose filmer needed a board for a trip and uh i gave it to her two years ago thinking it was just going to blow up one day. And, you know, I, t I gave her a fair warning, like, Hey, this thing's, you know, crap. <laughs> and, uh, but it's free. I saw a picture. Yeah, it's <laughs> free. And I saw a picture the other day. It's still up and running. So <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. Good, and, good uh, investment for Solomon boards. Yeah. There, really. yeah. And since then I moved on to, uh, to Cardiff boards and they're, they're just awesome. I've, Cardiff, I've never had a, a carbon split until last year. And, I can't believe I haven't had one before that. <laughs> it makes such a difference. Just walking uphill with light skis. It's insane. Amen to that. Yeah, no doubt. So you got, so you got the light board. Let's talk, if you don't mind, I'd love to go into that. I'm a gearhead when it comes to that kind of stuff. So what kind of, what kind of bindings and boots are you running? Uh, for bindings, I got uh, a bit of a Frankenstein setup. <laughs> As I'm sure a lot of splitboarders know, the past couple of years has been super hard to get, to get bindings and, I've always rode Spark because they were up in Bozeman where I was at. And uh, that's a good group of guys up there. And uh, my base plates, they just kept snapping in this one spot over and over. And uh, last year I was like, they, they broke one day. I had a class I had to teach the next day. I was just like scrambling to find something. And not a single shop in Utah had a pair of split bindings. 
um, and nothing available online. So what I was able to get was a pair of burned hitchhikers, which Spark makes. And the base plates on those are actually a little bit, they're less machine cut, so they have more material. You know, I'm a, I'm a tall guy, um, so I kind of need that stuff to prevent it from breaking. And so I Frankenstein the um, uh, hitchhiker base plates and then just put all the other uh, spark, I think it's the arc binding put uh, buckles and high backs on it. And then boots, I'm rocking uh, Solomon still. Actually, they're S-Labs. They're great. Nice. All right. Because <laughs> I teach so many avalanche classes, it's kind of like a uh, window shopping the entire time because I get to see what everyone has and kind of pick out what I like. You know, that's interesting, man. I love how you're, you know, like Mac, Maxwell and I were kind of talking about that before, how, uh, you know, um, people come out to the backcountry with the latest and the, like they got the money and they'll just buy the latest and greatest gear, but they don't know, they don't have a clue on how to use it, right? Like how often do you see that? And not to pick on people, but you do see that, right? Like I know even Chad and I had that conversation back in the day where um, Chad would buy a piece of equipment. And I'm like, dude, you need to, before we go in the backcountry, you need to geek out and learn how to use that thing. You know, like he bought a new beacon one time and I'm like, dude, you need, you can't just pull it out of the box and go into the backcountry, man. You need to figure <laughs> out how that thing works. Right. You need to know that thing before you go. And yeah. I guess you need to see that a lot too. Hey? Yeah, we see it. And I actually love it. Um, like I teach a lot of introductory avalanche courses and people who, you know, they show up with skins uncut, the binding is, or the, the transceiver is still in the box. You know, the probe is still in the probe casing and, um, wow. I, but I love it. I love seeing people coming to classes like that because that's not how I got started. And I got lucky to make it through that time of my life. Um, so it's really cool to see people starting the right way where they get the gear and they're like, I'm going to just go right into a class. Like I'm not even going to open this box until I get to the class. And, um, I don't really, I don't see a trailheads typically that person because I'm not looking for it. I'm sure it exists. And I just hope that those people can, get into some kind of education before they get too deep into the backcountry. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a big reason why Chad and I started this podcast, you know, because Chad was that guy. I mean, he reached out to me and he's like, dude, let's go into the backcountry. And he didn't have the experience. And I kind of declined to do that until he got the experience or, or at least got the training, you know, to go out to be a, uh, to be a, a good partner to go out into the backcountry with. And, and that's how we started this whole podcast was like, man, let's learn more and let's bring the audience along and hopefully they'll learn more. And that's how that would go. And I, I think we've had a pretty good impact on people that way, which is awesome, you know, which is what you do. So let's kind of transition into that. So here you are a guy from the, from the East, right. Come out West. Uh, you cut a really expensive North Nidecker board <laughs> and decided to beat the shit out of it on the rocks of Moab and, and then, <laughs> Um, get around with it. And then you got into splitboarding. And now uh, today you're a coordinator for Utah Avi Center, um, No Before You Go program. So give us a little history on how that happened for you. Like, how did you get into doing that? So, yeah, I went, like I said, I went to school at Montana State University um, and I was in their undergrad snow science program. It's like one of the few schools uh, in the country that has like a specific program dedicated to studying snow. I think Colorado has one too. Um, and <clears throat> the first two years were just, you know, core courses, you know, taking Spanish <laughs> enjoyment of music is a course I took <laughs> just knocking off core classes, you know, all that stuff. But then the last two years of the program, 
um, you really get your hands dirty and, you know, you're out there every Friday from, you know, 6am till, till nighttime, you're in the snow, you know, I can't imagine how many <laughs> countless pits we dug just as students from this program, but it was awesome, you know, getting a degree and something that was really fun to do. And it was a fun crew and great professors meet a lot of people. And then once I graduated from that program, it was hard to get my foot in the door. Um, spent a summer or a winter plowing snow, doing some landscaping, uh, just trying to make the right contacts to start, you know, getting some work uh, in avalanche education. And uh, Utah Avalanche Center has an internship every year. Uh, it popped up on my, you know, little email job list notifications. So I applied and I got the job. And two weeks later, I was moving to the Salt Lake City. And when I got that internship, you know, it's a nonprofit. We are a nonprofit and that's what the internship is for. It's for a nonprofit. So, you know, learning how to fundraise and, and do all this stuff. But the unique thing about this internship is it allows you the opportunity to get a foot in the door in terms of teaching um, if you want it. And it's kind of up to you to take it where, where you want to go. And um, after one season of interning, I got hired uh, and then started coordinating the no before you go program. So it, was, it was, took a while to get into it, but finally got my foot in the door and trying to run with it from there. That's awesome. When you, when you were saying there was one thing unique about it, I thought you were going to say you got paid. <laughs> but, um, we did get paid. <laughs> oh, you did. There's, oh, there's okay, opportunities did. to make money. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So the no before you go program, you want to break that down for us a little bit? Like, I mean, you're the coordinator totally. of that and how does that work and uh, all that good stuff? Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are at least familiar with the no before you go program. Um, like those four words are just said all the time and, and there's actually a program for it related to avalanche awareness. And it was designed to be like the first step in anyone's avalanche education journey, but it's also a great refresher to come back to at the start of each season. If you have a little bit of experience, you know, we just teach the fundamental points to get you started and pretty, you know, nowadays when you read these accident reports of avalanche fatalities and avalanche accidents, when they're professional, you can almost point to a, a point in the accident report and say, Hey, that's like a fundamental piece of avalanche education that was either ignored or looked over. And so I really do believe in these fundamental points being, um, something that everyone needs to learn about. But uh, I guess how the program started back in 2004 here in Utah, uh, Craig Gordon, one of our forecasters, um, he started the program after this major devastating accident down by Sundance. Uh, it was this massive storm, like right around Christmas time and like feet upon feet upon feet of snow, like even in the city, like it just shut down everything. And Sundance was trying their hardest to open up and they just couldn't do it. They're like, okay, we're calling it. Sorry. And uh, a bunch of people went just up the road to this place called Aspen Grove. And if you've ever been to Aspen Grove uh, and there's visibility, it's pretty clear that it's just massive mountains and it just dumps right into this parking lot. And uh, fortunately, these kids went up there just to enjoy some powder. Like, you know, Sundance is closed. Let's just go get some quick turns. And uh, a massive avalanche released like way above them, way above them and took out, you know, the entire valley. Pretty much there was just football fields and football fields of debris. And uh, 
uh, took the lives of these three young men. And Craig Gordon kind of looked at that accident and said, hey, there's, there's a gap we have in Salt Lake, right? We're right next to the mountains, but we are a city. And there's a lot of people in the city who look at these mountains, but don't understand the risk of going in there, right? Um, as opposed to like a small mountain town where kids grow up seeing avalanches come down from the mountains towards the road. Um, so Craig realized that there was this hole in education and created this program to kind of just educate, especially the youth that before you go into the backcountry, there's things you need, you need to do. You can't just jump out there or you're going to get hurt. Um, so that's how the program started. And, uh, and since then it's just grown like beyond anyone's belief, like every single avalanche center across the country, uh, has a link to know before you go. And, uh, and so it's just grown and grown and grown. And over the past couple of years, we realized it needed an update, uh, since its last update in 2014. Um, and so that's what I've been spending this past summer and, uh, last winter and this winter working on was just releasing this new program. So we have all new website all new presentation, uh, new videos produced by Sherpa Cinemas up in your neck of the woods, Darren. Um, nice. And uh, we actually have a full feature length film that just got released. It was in the Banff Film Festival. And uh, keep an eye out for that coming out on YouTube pretty soon. But it's really powerful. Like the movie is, it's not educational. It uh, tells the stories of people who've been impacted by avalanches. And it's really powerful. Um, really, really powerful. Yeah. Sweet. So can you, can you like, as a, as somebody who doesn't know a whole lot about the program, can you just kind of lay it out for myself, which might help a few listeners to just understand how does the program work? Cause I, I, you know, I love Craig's and, and I've met Craig, not personally in person, but we've interviewed Craig on the podcast before. I uh, awesome individual Craig <laughs> Gordon. Um, and if you haven't listened to that episode, everybody go back and listen to that episode. <laughs> it's a fucking wicked episode, but, um, but yeah, just kind of lay that out for me because I love Craig's mindset. Like there's this gap. There's these city folk who can see the snow and they can see the mountains and they're like tasty, tasty, want to go get. Um, but they just don't really know what the risks are involved. So how does the program help them? Can you kind of just run like you don't need to get into deep detail about the program, but just how does that help them? What What is involved in that? So we teach four fundamental points to get people started out. Um, on their avalanche education journey. And the first point is, is get the forecast. And so forecast is by far the most easily accessible thing that anyone can access relating to backcountry travel that could help keep them safe. It's published for free every day when there's snow in the mountains in, in most places. Um, and they're just professionals whose whole career is based around telling you what the snowpack is doing. And it's free. You can get it anytime if you have a web browser or a phone, you can call in. Um, so that's the first point we teach. We just go through how to find the forecast, some things it'll tell you, um, and how to pick through that. And then we focus on gear. So the second point is get the gear, right? So what is the essential gear, uh, transceiver, probe, shovel? Uh, what's some recommended gear? Um, and really why it's important that everyone carries all three pieces. So we don't necessarily teach how to use these devices. Um, we just teach that you need to have this. Here's why. And here's how to go get the, the training to educate yourself on how to use it. And that's the next point is, is get the training. So how to get into an avalanche class, some things you'll learn. And uh, with this new revamp, we actually, the whole get the training portion is 
um, very much related to what we were talking about before the podcast started about uh, kind of your avalanche eyeballs, right? So when you first get into the mountains and you're first getting started, you look up at this mountain basin and all you see is like, what's the best place to ride? Like, where can I get the goods? And then after you take an avalanche class, your eyes kind of start to open up and just looking at this basin, you're no longer looking at where's the best snow. You're looking at all these clues that are helping you indicate rising avalanche danger, possible uh, risks. And uh, just really focusing on the why it's important to get trained. It's, it's by far the best way to, to avoid getting caught in an avalanche. Just get your hands dirty in the snow with an avalanche professional. And then the very final point we focus on is it's called get the picture. And this one focuses more on uh, what to be aware of when you're actually traveling through the mountains. So um, what is avalanche terrain? What are some safe travel protocols to abide by? And uh, what are some things to look out for that indicate danger might be rising? So those five red flags being recent avalanches, uh, heavy snowfall or rain, uh, rapid wind, warm up, um, and cracking and collapsing. So I'm just listening to that and, and who, you know, who we're trying to educate on that too. Do, is there, is there a new gap now? Like, is there a new gap between people doing the no before you go and then actually getting into an AVI awareness course? Because that would be the next level, right? Is yeah, doing totally. that AVI awareness course. And is, is there, do you find, uh, is it a bit of a challenge? Like you get people who do the no before you go course and then they're like, man, and, and how long does that take that no before you go education? Is that a one night, a one evening, a one day? So the presentations are typically an hour long. And then we have a whole online learning platform that takes about six hours to complete through and through, but it's, it's on your own time. So you can kind of do it how, how you please. Eat, eat, um, eat, eat a chunk here, eat a chunk there type of thing. Yeah. 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 It's great with a cup of coffee in the morning or, or after dinner as you're watching some TV, but or a beer. And we do get the occasional, uh, <laughs> the occasional, you know, what, what's the m minimal amount of education I need to be certified to go into the backcountry? We get that question quite a bit. Yeah. And, um, it, I love getting asked that because that's kind of how I felt starting out was like, okay, I see all these cool lines. I'm either going to go there without any education, or I'm going to do the bare minimum to be able to go there. And the no, like that's not how avalanche education works. And I've learned that in my career is that the, I'm even me. I'm continuously learning all the time. Every time I go out, I'm making mental notes and um, even keep a little log of of events that have happened that I can learn from in the backcountry. But um, I think it's that gap is less so now than I think it has ever been before in terms of people not realizing that they need an education. I think it's kind of become like the cool thing to do is to get an avalanche education and be smart about how you're recreating in the mountains, um, yeah. which is really cool yeah. to see over the past few years. It's, it's, I mean, our classes fill up it's the second we post them online. Like people are itching to get into these classes. And even 10 years ago, it was a struggle to fill like three or four classes a season. Wow. That's excellent. I'm glad. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, certainly glad to hear about that man it's definitely important i think and and i can see especially in a big city mentality and i mean i've been to salt lake it's a big city it's uh i've lived in bigger cities that's for sure before but uh you know i, I know what it's like uh, i could see the big city mentality where people would be like yeah 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 you know i did the 
do the know before you go. I'm good. I'm good. You know, I'm, let's go. Let's get, let's hit it. Let's hit it. But that danger is still there for sure. I love yeah. uh, I love the the be humble attitude that you have too. Like somebody guy with or somebody like a guy like yourself with the experience that you have, um, but still learning, forever learning, right? Because uh, there is still so much to know out there. That's excellent. Yeah, I forget the name of that graph um, that shows um, your experience in the mountains versus your knowledge or your perceived knowledge. Right, and you know it spikes real quick as soon as you get a little bit of education. And then an event happens where it just shoots right back down and you realize, you know, nothing. And then as time goes on, it goes back up and jumps back down. Just right. Right. Adds and flows. <laughs> or even like we were talking about before, where I like personally, I had that ignorant bliss before I took the course. And then, and then, uh, you know, my confidence, you know, that, that, that chart of my confidence change, right? Like I had that spike before I took that training. And then after training, my confidence went down a little bit, you know, and then, it starts to creep up a little bit as I start to learn more and get a little more confident with what's going on out there and take more <laughs> courses. And like I mentioned to you earlier, I've taken that AVI awareness course or, you know, our, up here in Canada, our, our level one. Um, I've done that twice now and I found that super beneficial to actually do that twice. Whereas I've known people who are like, did my AVI one man and next week I'm signing up for AVI two and I'm hitting into <laughs> AVI two, you know, and I get people telling me that all the time. And I'm like, are you sure that's really the best way to go? You know, is, are you ready for the AVI two? Is that, is that your next step or is your next step maybe some more riding with somebody who's got that level, you know, and, and being part of the discussion and then applying it that way. And then, like I said, I found it super beneficial to take the course a second time because there was not a ton that I retained from the first time around. Sweet. Yeah. I love the program. I love the Utah Avi Center. I'm really stoked on the Utah Avi Center, you know, and after meeting Craig Gordon and, and having our chat with Craig Gordon that we did, and we talked a lot with Craig. We spent a lot of time on the phone with him pre, post, <laughs> during the whole deal, you know? So good dude. Love chatting with him. Mm -hmm. Totally. He's a wealth of information. He can also rattle off avalanche history. Like it's logged away in his brain somewhere yeah. special. Yeah. No, well, he's been and around tell you exactly when, when it's avalanched and what were the conditions leading up to it. Hey, and a dude from the East, right? From New Jersey, Craig. That's what I remember. Yeah. Surfer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Sweet. Boom. There you go. All right. So, um, you know, my mind kind of went off the rails a little bit like it often does, but, uh, I started thinking when you were talking there, um, because one of the things that you brought up was really interesting and it was something that, um, Chad and I kind of discovered. And then some friends of ours in the Kootenays have been working on a program called state of the snowpack in that local area. But, one of the things we started talking about, Chad and I, with somebody that we realized during conversation with the one time was the history of the snow in the area. You know, like in the, in the past, how has it reacted? Is there some lessons from that that you can apply to every season as you go forward? You guys are always dealing with dynamic stuff in your area right now. I mean, like even today, we were talking about it and how it's changing. Can you play yeah. a little bit on that, you know, and how that works? Yeah, it's... I really found that to be special here in Utah because people have such a intimate knowledge of the snow, um, at a very localized level. Like there's a million and a half people in the Salt Lake Valley and there's, you know, pretty much two main canyons that people can go up and recreate in that's in the city. And so with that just comes a whole like knowledge bank of, Oh, I remember this season. It started off similar to what we have now. And, um, you know, then we got a whole bunch of snow and then this happened, or, you know, we have weird weather events sometimes where we'll get a storm that 
dump snow. And then all of a sudden we'll get this east wind that either strips it away or adds to it. And uh, you can go back in the records and just see when that's happened before and, and tie it to similar avalanches that had happened during that time. And even just talking with ski patrol and avalanche forecasters who have been here for so long, um, it's crazy to see how more or less accurate they can predict weird weather events. And, you know, when I was really cutting my teeth in the backcountry up in Montana, it's, it's more or less like a no man's land. Like, you know, they put one danger rating for an entire mountain range and they leave it up to you to figure out the rest. It's super helpful to have just a wealth of knowledge of all these professionals in Salt Lake that, you know, they've seen pretty much everything. It's yeah, really you unique. know, you know, here in Canada, we have, you know, Avalanche Canada. That's it, right? Like we don't have centers like you guys have down there. We don't have regional. I mean, you, you know, Avalanche Canada has their satellites for sure, right? And their and their people in certain zones and areas. Um, but it's not the same as down there. Like where I've seen regionally down there, you have these not for profits that do that that avalanche forecasting for the areas. Um, you know, yeah, it's funny because you you know when you're saying Montana is like no man's land and. And you made me start thinking about Montana is pretty close to where I am too, right? It's like directly south of me. Um, I think I could be there in like nine or 10 hour drive for an, an example. Hit Bozeman and go <laughs> see Will go see Will and the boys and see how the cake is made as Dan puts it out there. But um, but yeah, it's uh man, you you kind of brought it to light for me when you said there's like a million and a half people in the in the Salt Lake Valley. I didn't even realize that there's that many people there. Like I said, I've been to Salt Lake. I've been down to Moab, right? And and did the drive from Salt Lake to Moab and didn't realize that the population was that dense there. That's pretty wicked. That's awesome. Um, and then I can see how that brings you to that point where you're, you're running into a lot of people on the trail where you're out there in the day. How much of an impact uh, do those people have on you as a rider in that zone sometimes? Uh, greatly. I mean, it's, it's amazing to be able to just text someone who, you know, has been out in the mountains recently and say, Hey, what did you see? Right. And, uh, and they'll tell you, they'll tell you. Um, yeah, it's just awesome. And it's, it's funny. Like there is a million and a half people in the Valley. You go up the mountains and you're going to run into every single person that you're friends with. And, and that's all the people you'll see. Um, which is really cool. Just being able to, it's like a community within a big community. Yeah. You know? You know, it, it's great to have you on, Matt, because it's like this whole know before you go program, you know, I've seen it from its inception to where it is today. And and you guys have done a great job on it. And it, it is so important, like you had mentioned. And and you touched on a, on a big thing. It's like, you know, you, once like so many people seek out this avalanche information or avalanche knowledge, but not too many people focus on the equipment, right? And you've even mentioned it, like people will show up to a class, like trying to unbox their bindings to go out <laughs> or their skins are uncut and all that good stuff. And it's like, you gotta be prepared there too. So, you know, is there any helpful advice that you could kind of share with people in that regard to like prep your equipment and, or just other things, because this is such a foundational program to know before you go. And it is free and it's amazing, but it's like, also it's like, that's just a part of it. Right. And, and getting the gear is a big aspect of it. So it's not only just the three crucial avalanche tools you have, but you 
what's on your feet, what's on your back, those kind of things. Yeah. I, uh, I had a one, one big wake up call, uh, in Bozeman one time where I realized the importance of carrying gear, not just in the event of an avalanche, but just being in the mountains is dangerous as it is like early season conditions, rocks, trees, all that stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember one time we were walking to this, it was a very popular area, uh, in Bozeman. It was up on history rock. If anyone's familiar with it, just everyone just goes there. Everyone. It was super early season. And, uh, we saw this guy just walking down the trail all by himself, kind of hobbling around, no skis. And we were like, what, what's, what's this kind of older gentleman doing in the middle of the woods? Like, and then we got closer and realized he was like a 21 year old kid. Something was clearly wrong. And he just lifts up his shirt and there's a, a branch the size of my forearm that had impaled him. And it was like coming out of his belly button. And he's like, oh, I just, can you just help me get back to the car? I'll drive myself to the hospital. I'll be fine. We're like, no, no, dude, you cannot move. Like we don't know what internal organs were hit or what. And, uh, all we had, he didn't have any, he ditched his backpack where he got impaled and he was just trying to walk down. And so all we had was a way to start a fire and, uh, some, some ace bandage, like some gauze. And, uh, we, we ended up sending a couple of people up the mountain to try to get service, a couple of people back down to the car and then drive back to the town to get service. Um, while we just kept him warm and tried to stabilize this branch from doing anything. Uh, and I just felt so underprepared, like super underprepared. Like what if that had happened to one of our crew? Like this was someone we didn't even know we're going to do our best to help him. But what if it was someone in, in our crew and, um, long story short, you know, he got helicoptered out of there. He was fine. I saw him skiing Bridger bowl like a month later. Um, oh, wow. but, uh, I, I took a woofer after that. I got a solid first aid kit. I carry a rescue sled rope, uh, a Garmin in reach and all that stuff just lives in the bottom of my bag, hoping that I'll never need it. But, um, I'll be super thankful for the day that I do need it. Uh, cause the mountains are just dangerous. Like, avalanches aside it's a dangerous place um it is you just you just brought another level to it too man because it's and we it's not like we haven't had this discussion before on this podcast with regards to what's in your pack and being prepared i mean i'm well known for rather i'd rather have it not need it than need it and not have it type of thing exactly and i i run into that problem and i run into that line where i'm like why the fuck does my pack feel so much heavier than everybody else's pack you know what i mean like and and I've got a friend who's a photographer and we go out with him and and my pack is the second heaviest pack is his packs always the heaviest pack, of course. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but like you just mentioned a couple of things and, and, you know, <laughs> I have a relative who's a physician and, uh, I had a surgery a couple of years ago and I have some painkillers left over from that surgery. So I asked him, I said, Hey man, do these things expire? Like, should I throw them in my first aid kit? Is it something good to have in my first aid kit? He's like, they don't expire. They don't go bad. You can still keep them in your first aid kit. They lose their efficacy at worst is what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, definitely good to have. If anybody has any acute pain, it'll work well, you know. So add that to the first aid kit. So just another thing and another thing. Like you talked about a rescue sled. I've heard lots of conversations about that. You know, what is a valuable rescue sled to have? Is there something that can double as a rescue sled? And I mean, I know I'm going off the rails here, you guys, a little bit. But it's just where my mind is going when we're talking about that kind of stuff. And and just thinking about, you know, you're talking about the fundamentals that these know before you go people have to have, like get the gear and know how to use the gear. 
but then mm-hmm. where does the gear stop? Where does it end? And it just like, it gets to um, never ends. It never <laughs> ends. <laughs> I know. Should see I my know. closet. I know. I know. I know. My whole family knows, man. I've got an entire 25% of my basement is my gear. <laughs> I kind of think of it like backpacking where you, each time you go out, you have a piece of gear that you either wish you had or a piece of gear that you were like, I will never need this. And so over the years, you just, you dial your bag in to be like perfect. Yeah. And you it's know, almost it's, therapeutic I, to like pack it. <laughs> I, I hiked the Appalachian trail when I was in my twenties, I did a through hike and, and the day I started, I probably think I was carrying a 55 pound pack because I bought the biggest fucking pack I could carry. Right. <laughs> Thinking that I needed all this stuff and I ended up hurting myself to be honest with you. And then what I learned along the way, along the trail was the motto was, if you don't use it every day, don't carry it. You know what I mean? Like, it, and that was kind of the motto, but I could not get away from the fact that, but what if, you know, and <laughs> mm-hmm. like, I, I always carry a bigger first aid kit than I'll ever need. You know, I think, I hope I'm carrying a bigger first aid kit than I'll ever need. But I, I like, again, I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. You know, and I've run into those issues. I have the hitchhiker bindings. Will and I have had many conversations about these, you know, and, and I've broken my bindings and, and I've had that shit that kicks around in my pack that never gets used. But guess what? There was that day where it got me out of the woods, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, and I'm glad I had it, you know, whereas other people are like, why the fuck are you carrying that stuff, man? You don't need that <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, no, uh, look, trust me. I need it Run day. <laughs> yeah. And I, so I'd say amazing. like the one piece of gear that is, like if I were only to carry one piece of gear in my bag, other than the essentials, it'd be uh volley straps and tight right. straps. I agree. Yeah. Those things are like the zip ties and duct tape for the backcountry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Combined. Hey, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. We had, we had a student last year. It was, you know, we were going for a pretty big tour for this class. It was like, you know, four miles up or something, maybe 2000 feet of vert, which for an education class, quite a bit because we have to pack in all this other information and he shows up at the par- the parking lot. You know, we we're all throwing our boards and skis down. He's clipped in. He starts walking and he's not going anywhere. He's just doing the moonwalk. And we're like, Oh, you don't have skins. Are they, are they in your oh, bag? And he's like, oh, forgot my skins. But luckily we had eight, you know, volet straps between us and, uh, put two, two volet straps, uh, under each foot. And then another on the tip and tail of each ski. Sure enough, he made it all day long without slowing anyone down. Like Jeez. it was what? just as good as as skins. That hey folks, that's a pro tip right there, man. Yeah. Like if you blow a skin, lose a skin, or just mm-hmm. it's hopeless skin, there you go, man. There's your way out. They've wow. definitely yeah. helped me in the backcountry on a many a tour, just like because the glue fails or it's super cold, and you just put a strap around it, holds the skin on. That's mm-hmm. amazing. That's mm-hmm. wicked. That's wicked. Cool, cool. So besides the 10 essentials, Matt, cause you kind of touched on that. Is there being an avalanche professional that you are besides like the first aid kit and all these other things, could you break down what you would put in your pack? Cause we do that in the segment here was like, what's in your pack, mm-hmm. but is there anything special that you could relay to the listeners that, Hey, maybe you should have a little kit with these things in it. And before you answer yeah. that, can you start it off with, how big is your pack? That's what I want. What size of pack are you carrying? So I have a couple of different packs and, uh, it depends on, you know, the what I'm doing for the day. Um, if I'm teaching or, or going out for a day tour, I'll usually use like a 32 liter. And then 
Uh, if I'm guiding and have to carry a little bit more gear, I'll use a, a 40 liter. And normally I can pack pack it all down in there. Um, but yeah, so what I what I carry every day, regardless of what I'm going out, is that rescue sled, um, first aid kit, um, and uh, some extra rope can always come in handy, and a bivy, emergency bivy, in case you have to spend the night. So that's kind of like the bottom layer of my pack. That stuff just lives down there. I hope I never have to touch it, but it's just going to live down there no matter what I'm doing for the day. And then um, above that, just extra layer. I always carry like three pairs of gloves because I'm constantly putting my hands in the snow. And I I seem to always have the worst pair of gloves of anyone in my group. Holes all over them. So I carry a lot of gloves. And uh, typically a layer that I don't think that I will need, but I'll be happy in case I do need it. So like today, for instance, um, it wasn't that necessarily too brutally cold, but it was going to be cold. Um, and so I brought this super heavy, uh, uh, hard shell outerwear and thinking I wasn't going to have to use it, but I was like, Oh, you know, if one of the students needs it, I'll give it to them. Or if I'm, you know, just dying to cold, I'll throw it on. And sure enough, I threw it on, kept me happy for throughout the day. So I always carry like a layer that I don't think I'll need, but I'm, I'm surely happy if I do. Um, and then, yeah, for my, I carry like a little repair kit. So I've had way too many bindings and skins fail when I'm, you know, two ridge lines over from my car mm-hmm. <laughs> and panic starts to set in. Um, but I always carry like an extra heel riser, um, extra pole baskets. Surprisingly, as soon as you lose a pole basket, your day is just seemingly <laughs> ruined. Like you, wow. you can't move like 10 feet. It's crazy. It becomes a pro. <laughs> And just like, <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. So yeah. I never thought I always it. carry an extra yep. full basket. Yeah. That's a um, pro tip. Sure. Uh, headlamp always just in case. And mm-hmm. then, uh, one thing in that I, I don't carry it all the time. I probably should carry it all the time. And I wish more people did carry it, uh, with CPR mask, you know, just mm-hmm. in case. Yeah. That's a great point, man. Because, uh, in my line of work, um, you know, the facility I work for, we teach a lot of first aid courses and everybody who comes to take a first aid course gets a mask. They get a pocket mask. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how many people are like, don't yeah. that course, don't need that for another three years. <laughs> yeah. That's, I feel like that's the type of thing where, um, if I've never had to do CPR, I've seen enough videos where I know if I ever have to do CPR, I'm going to really wish I had a CPR mask. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah, and it's a. Now I grew up in that area era where we didn't have masks. <laughs> it's lips on lips type of thing, right? And it's changed a whole lot. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be comfortable without a mask anymore, because all the training I've ever done was with a mask. Now, right? So, great point, man. That's a great point. And, and so, Mac, this is great to have you on because you know, as we we're talking here, it's like we know that you're your episode's going to come on the tail end of uh, Utah's avalanche week. But as you know, anyone in the avalanche world, professional or not recreationalists, we think as December as a prep month for avalanches to get our skills sharp and, you know, work with our tools, work with our partners and, and just get kind of dialed into the winter. So, do you have any like like advice for the listeners for things that they can do in preparation of the week that we're 
coming into as the beginning of maybe you could talk about what is Utah Avalanche Week and then we can talk about a little bit more for preparing for the month ahead. Mm. Yeah, so Utah has an Avalanche Awareness Week. It's every year. It's the first full week of December. Um, and it was it's state-funded. It's, uh, it's awesome to see that the state of Utah recognizes how important Avalanche Awareness is. Um, and during that week, you know, we just have tons of Avalanche education opportunities. So obviously, know before you goes. Um, we started hosting these community avalanche rescue practices. So, you know, go down to Sugar House Park in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, you know, we have Life Flight come in with the helicopter to attract some folks. Um, we have, you know, backcountry rescue parties there. And we just, you know, anyone's welcome to come and we'll just show you how to use your gear. Um, so people come with their beacon shovel probe and we'll just give them a rundown of how to use it and how to get signed up for an online uh, or an in-person avalanche class. Um, and yeah, like December, really November and December is crucial avalanche awareness time. Like, you know, right now here in Utah, the riding's pretty good, but normally it's a lot shallower where, you know, people aren't really itching to go out and get the big lines yet. And it's the perfect time to just take your partners out and do a day of rescue. Um, I did one last week with my friends and, uh, it just kind of helps you sleep at night knowing that. You know, you can practice all you want yourself with Avalanche Rescue. That's not going to save your life. It's going to save your partner's life. So knowing that your partners are also dialed and like seeing them do a, a rescue practice trail um, just kind of gives you more confidence and makes you a better touring partner. And so this time of year, I'm always just coming back to, I have like a yearly routine, like attend at least, you know, two awareness presentations. Um, even if I've seen it before, I just want to hear a new instructor's point of view. Um, I have this little book right here, Snow Sense. This was the first first book I ever got on avalanches. I got it when I first moved to Utah and Moab, just read it through and through. And I always come back to it at the start of each season to kind of remind myself of the fundamentals. Um, and I, I think honestly, just practicing rescue drills, like have at least one day where you take your buddies out, show them what you got and take a look at what they got. Um, Cause it, you know, good backcountry partners are people who you truly like love and trust. Um, and so you can't just do that on a whim, you know, you need to witness their, their skills to help you know that you're going to make it home at the end of the day. Absolutely. And it is tough to slow down sometimes cause we're all frothing and we want to, you know, we love just being in the mountains and riding down them. So it's, it's really important to take that time. Because yeah, you're responsible for your friends and they're responsible for you. So yeah, that's, that's good tips and advice there. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's way easier to do that in December when, you know, the snow quality is not super mm -hmm. perfect. It's way harder in the middle of January to convince your friends to <laughs> not ski, but be in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you know, one of the things that, that blows my mind is and something that's seems way bigger down in the U S on your side of the border than our side of the border, or at least in, in the regions that I'm familiar with is, um, uh, like having beacon parks, for example, like that's a great, a great resource to have. And I, and I know they're more often at re at resorts and whatnot, but, uh, but, but having that, just even having that ability to get out, like, like I mentioned to you earlier, I'm a geek when it comes to the gear, right? Like I, man, I can tell you, 
when I bought my first split board setup, I bought everything. I, and, you know, I would not have been that guy showing up without having my skins trimmed, man. I mean, like you couldn't have got me home fast enough to get them trimmed. You know what I mean? Like, and then figuring out how to put them on, how to take them off, how to put them in the pack, how to carry them, like all that stuff. I wanted to know that before I got out on the trail, you know, and, and so that I could be efficient, not, not that I had this fear of being slow and slowing anybody down, but just so that, you know, that's just, it's, it's part of my background and my history and, and who I am and all that good stuff. Um, needing to have that experience is important. I have always ridden with skiers and it wasn't really till I had one, my main touring partner up in Bozeman, he was split boarder, but other than that, it was mainly skiers. So I was terrified of slowing people down. So I would sit in my living room watching TV, just putting my board back together, taking it apart, putting skins on, seeing how fast I could do it. And it makes like a world of a difference when, um, you know, your skier buddies are just walking across a flat field. You could just rip your board apart real quick, throw some skins on, catch up with them, go past them, get to the mm-hmm. end point, get your board back together. And then they just come walking right up and you're on the same page. And, uh, yeah, just, I also have that feeling of like, I want to be prepped before I go back there. I don't want to be figuring it out, you know, in a dangerous environment. I want to do it in the comfort of my living room. Absolutely. And building that muscle memory when it comes to that too, makes a big difference than trying to figure it out ad hoc in the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Which can make it super difficult and cumbersome, right? You're dropping stuff, you're losing stuff, you know, you don't have, like everything doesn't have its place in your pack. Whereas it sounds like to me, Mac, like you're, everything has its place in your pack. Like you know exactly where that third set of gloves is going. You know exactly where that bivy is. You know exactly where that rescue sled is. Like you said, that stuff lives on the bottom of your pack. That's kind of like for me, that roll of toilet paper and that first aid kit always on the bottom <laughs> of the pack, right? <laughs> but not always being pulled out every time, right? But uh, but it's always there. It's just the the couple items that are always in my pack. Same same. Interesting. That book that you held up, that Snow Sense book, can you just, uh, just for everybody, um, you know, who wrote that book? And uh... Yeah, so it's, uh, it's called Snow Sense. Um, it was written quite a while ago, but uh, it's by uh, Jill Fredston and Doug Fessler and it was edited by Carl Berklin and Doug Chabot. And Doug Chabot is kind of a, a god to me being, you know, spending so much time in Bozeman. Um, he's the lead forecaster up there. And I mean... Yeah, it's it's quite funny. Like you still see my little dog years I put in the book from 2013, and I still come back to them every year. Nice. I love that reinforcement that you were talking about. Like even for yourself, going and just listening to, even though you've heard it a hundred times before, you know, getting that kind of like I was talking about before, taking that second AST one just getting that reinforcement on the information and a different perspective from a different instructor because there is so much to know. And when it comes to the mountains, as we all know, they're super unpredictable and they throw curves at you everywhere. And, and um, not one person has all that knowledge, right? It, it, it takes a community of knowledge when it comes to that. And that's one thing that I find great about not just the Utah Ivy Center, but the fact that down in the States, like we were talking about before, you guys have all those regional centers that work out like that because you do have that community of knowledge that applies to it. And everybody gets the opportunity to learn that. That's awesome. Love it, man. Love it. Yeah, yeah, it's well, just a wealth no, of information. <laughs> yeah, it's just like I was saying, I was like, we're really fortunate to have the UAC here. It's like, it's such a metropolis and we've got some of the most amazing terrain, the Wasatch, but, and you have the, 
the best avalanche professionals to match it. And it's, and it's yeah, such it's a, it's such a great resource and a benefit to us that you keep us on top and you always keep us safe and you're always, you know, tweaking the programs, making them better or applying the framework to, a another user group, like, you know, splitboarding classes taught by splitboarders and, and all that. And we're just so fortunate for everything you do down here. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. And yeah, honestly, like it wouldn't, we wouldn't be the center we are without the community. Like not a lot of avalanche centers will post public observations that get sent in. Um, but I mean, we have 11 forecasters for the entire state of Utah and, you know, they can't be everywhere at once. There's no way. And so we just get these tons and tons and tons of observations from the public and it really helps us out. Um, it's awesome to see too. I, that's a program that I'm really proud of that the UAC, uh, holds on to just posting these public observations. That's crazy. You know, the, the avalanche Canada has a program, they have their app and they have uh, we have what's called a min report. So if you're out and you're on a tour and you see something, you can post your observations publicly. On the app. And then everybody can get to see that and, and put in as much or as little information as you can. I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing when you watch, when you look at min reports and what some people, some people are super detailed, man. I mean, they're just, they're throwing information in there that's almost, at, you know, at the level of a forecaster. And it's amazing to see. And they're giving you live information from that day, which includes photos, you know, they can add them in there too, which is a great resource, you know, because there's, there's plenty of places where I've gone to ride where, man, look, latest min report was yesterday. Dude. Let's check it out and see what was going on. You know? Yeah. And, and if your avalanche center doesn't post public observations, they still take them. So if you're out there and you see something, take a picture, send it into to the avalanche center. It helps them tremendously. You know, they can't be everywhere at once. The mountains are a big place with a lot of spatial variability. So, yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Great, great message to the community out there, right? Like just because they may not be posting them doesn't mean you shouldn't drop that information in there. You know, yeah, certainly. Absolutely. Helpful. Even a do, picture. Uh, yeah. So a thousand do, words. do a lot of the avalanche centers, do they have that resource available to users in the backcountry to, to add that information? Is there an app that that works for that? Or is it uh, more of an email type process or how does that work? Uh, it's more of an email type thing here at the Utah Avalanche Center. We have a submission form on our website. So you don't even have to email it. Just you fill out this form, uh, click submit, and then a forecaster will review it and publish it later that night. Um, and like up in the Gallatin, for instance, uh, I would always just email the forecasters what I saw throughout the day and, uh, they'll post your pictures too. Um, yeah, even if they don't list specific observations from the public, they'll use your information and put it in the forecast. Okay. Uh, and it's also a great, really great way to get feedback too. Um, if you're trying to learn how to be a more valuable asset to the backcountry community, um, you send an observation into a forecaster, they're going to read it before the end of the day. And, uh, they might even send you an email and say, Hey, thanks for the forecast. Um, can you tell me a little bit more information about, you know, this thing you saw or, uh, Hey, next time you're out, can you look out for this problem that we're curious about? Um, so it's a great way to, you know, help yourself and also just get to know the community. Makes it a great teaching tool for a guy like yourself too, right? When you can present that to your class and say, Hey, listen, you know, I know because I know when I did my Avi one course, it was like, hey, everybody, let's uh, let's go to the website and pull up the min report for Parker Ridge down in Banff, for example, you know, and let's mm -hmm. 
let's take a look at yesterday's men report. Look, there's a couple of people out riding and this is what they had to say about what was going on out there. So, and it's awesome, you know, especially for a zone where you guys are, because you have cell service in your zone, man. <laughs> we don't have cell service in our zones, you know, like if you guys had an app that people could post live information on like to the minute type of thing, like how handy could that be right for the next yeah. people who are coming up the trailhead? Absolutely. And Instagram's kind of taken that field and run with it. Um, so if you, if you ever see something in the field and you have service, um, post it as a story or even a static uh, post yeah, and tag yeah. your, your avalanche center. Um, cause that's, that's content that they're just itching for, you know, it's really hard to go out there and get detailed observations on the snow and also take pictures of everything mm-hmm. that's going on. So, um, yeah, we did it, that the other day. Center. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. it works. It's great to see Cause then you're like flipping through all your friends' stories and it's like a Utah Abbey on air and you're just like, yeah, it's a great way to share the resource. That's yeah. another great pro tip right there, man. Mm-hmm. Like a resource that probably a lot of people don't think of is, you know, watch, watch out the IG feed while you're going up the trailhead, right. And see if anybody's dropping any relevant information for the zone you're hitting. Wow. Boom. Light bulb moment right there. <laughs> yeah. I've had it happen because we're like hiking up a Kular and, you know, some of them mix blend together at the top and, someone gave another friend a heads up that we were coming up and they were at the top and they were getting ready to drop in. So it's, it's, it's a great resource to have when you, when you use it and you're communicating with your friends. That's for Mm. sure. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about like, uh, cause we talk about know before you go and getting this fundamental education, building blocks to put you on the path for other courses We've talked about like what's in your pack, what you can prepare for, um, getting the gear, tuning that gear up in your living room. But now when you're venturing out into the mountains, like, do you ever bring the conversation of like etiquette into mm-hmm. what you talk about with the courses, right? Cause you're, you're sharing all this information about how do we move in the mountains? How do we look out for each other? How do we communicate better? You know? And like, what, let's talk about that component. Yeah. So what we focus on, uh, specifically with know before you go and what to like be aware of when you're moving through the mountains is really just avalanche terrain. Like what is avalanche terrain? Like how do you identify it? And it's actually really hard to get, to take an accurate guess of a slope angle. Um, and so my rule of thumb is if it looks fun to ride, it's probably avalanche terrain. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and if you have to move through avalanche terrain, like if the conditions warrant it, um, if the avalanche problem is not present on that slope and you have to move through slopes steeper than 30 degrees, just space it out. Just go one at a time and put as little people as possible at risk. Um, because if you put four people on a slope and an avalanche does occur, you're the only one standing on the side. There's no way you're going to get those four people out, um, in 10, 15 minutes. Um, so just by spacing it out, you know, you expose only one person at a time. And if an avalanche does occur, then you have three people to help with the rescue. Um, and just really simple things. And it's, it's almost hard to do. Like, I can't tell you how many countless times I've been walking through avalanche terrain, heads down with my buddies. And I look up and we're all just, you know, nuts to butts on the skin track. <laughs> and you see it's it a just lot so, here. Si- <laughs> yeah, it's so yeah. simple to just say, hey, I'm just going to hang out here in this safe zone, let you go. Um, and I'll catch you in 10 minutes, you know, it's not that big of a time waster. Mm -hmm. Um, so just spacing out and 
just always be aware of what's above you, especially when you hear those words, persistent weak layer, like you have to be thinking about connected terrain. Um, you're not safe walking through the bottom of a flat valley if there's super steep slopes that are coming down on you and there's persistent weak layer problem. Mm -hmm. um, it's like just picture a row of dominoes underneath the snow. And you, if you just hit that wrong domino, it's going to go shooting up the hill. Um, so just always being aware of what's above you and thinking about connected terrain and then just always paying attention to those five red flags too. Um, recent avalanches, you know, avalanches are a herd species. If you see one, there's going to be more. Um, <laughs> and they're not like, they don't just strike out of nowhere, right? They're, we can kind of predict where they're going to be. So if you see one, just pay attention to what aspect that slope's facing, what elevation it was. Um, and then you can just avoid those slopes for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just super simple things that you can do to just stack the odds in your favor. Um, just the fundamentals it always comes back to the fundamentals. Absolutely. You know, you, you said something, I mean, avalanches are hurt species. I had to write that one down. That's awesome. I love that. Um, that's not mine. I did not come up with that. <laughs> no, that's cool. Though. Well, I'm quoting you though, bro. So. But, uh, but one of the things you, you said that, that triggered in my head is something that I, I don't think I ever heard ever before in any of my AVI awareness courses is, is like being at the bottom of that flat valley and having those steep side slopes on the side and mm -hmm. the dominoes and you kick that one domino out. And I didn't, I never thought about it propagating from the bottom up and yeah. bringing, bringing a slope down. I, I never considered that, but dude, you just blew my mind with that. So uh, I'm soaking that in right now. And that's, uh, that's definitely going into my pocket for future use. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of how it acts is that, just needs to propagate up that slope and it's just that row of dominoes like mm -hmm. whenever i'm doing an ect and i see that propagation i just in my head it's just like, like row of dominoes going down um, yeah and i get that i just i never considered that from that i always thought about avalanches and for me it was always top down i always mm -hmm. thought about it that way. i never thought about it from the bottom up you know and how how i need to be just as tenderfoot sometimes in some areas in the bottom of the valley when you get the slopes on the side of you bam like just you just blew my brain up man for a second there so and we yeah, the, the good, much everybody we know but. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it the good thing is too like it's not like um it's not like you'll be walking through that valley and all of a sudden an avalanche just strikes you right there's going to be clues so if you're walking through mm -hmm. that valley and you you feel that collapse and you feel and yourself that settle yeah that's just bullseye information that you know your next step you might trigger something big up the slope <laughs> the landmine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Really? Do I go backwards? Do I go forwards? Do I go sideways? Which <laughs> you just freeze. Hitting <laughs> <laughs> the button on your Garmin inReach. <laughs> we actually got right here. A, a super loud collapse today in this course I was teaching. And one of the students was sitting down on the snow and uh, I was kind of walking out on the slope and it just. And he said he felt the energy like go up through his body and it just instantly like made him realize that something was not right. Um, so these signs are like in your face and when they are in your face like that, you shouldn't ignore them. You know, the mountains are talking to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, good point. Yeah. Well, and th that's a word, that line that you just said right there. I've heard that so many times, man, the mountains are talking to you and they're telling you something you need to pay attention. Yeah. You have to you, listen. You need, you need to learn their language though too. Right. That's really important. Yeah. Wow. That's Boom. a good, that's a good quote right there. 
<laughs> the right. mountains are talking. It's your job to listen. It. Don't forget it. But you have to understand its language. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> could be um, speaking to you in French. Could be German. Oui, could oui, be. Oui, 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 oui. Yeah. Um, man, Chad would be going off right now. You said speaking in French. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, Chad. McKinley, you had, you, had uh, you know, obviously, like, you know, you gave us a little bit of, uh, little bit of homework to do before you came on and some reading to do. And, man, I want you to tell a story right now. And I want you to tell a, a story. I want you to tell that story. You know which story I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can you, can you tell us that story, please? That one memorable story in splitboarding. Yeah. So this story always, always sticks with me. And, uh, every now and then I'll be in a situation in the mountains where I'll get these little flashbacks of this story and I'll say, okay, I, I recognize where, uh, what's going on here. And I've, made this decision before and I know where that goes. So I'm going to make another decision. But, um, essentially I was up in Bozeman. Um, and at this point I was, I was starting to get my education under me. Like I started to understand the snow a little bit more and, uh, I was feeling more confident in like making my own decisions in the group and like speaking and, uh, voicing my opinions. But it was super windy day. We had a persistent weak layer, uh, as Montana always does. Um, and, uh, we loaded up the car, me and my buddy, and he was like, Hey, yeah, we're going to go meet, uh, my two friends at this trailhead, uh, who I've, I've never met before. I've never ridden with them. Um, he's like, yeah, they're dialed. They're pretty dialed. They get after it. I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Uh, so we go park at this trailhead. Uh, the winds are just whipping. It's freezing cold. You know, we're already miserable just stepping out of the car. So we just get our boots on, do a quick beacon check and we just start hiking, like barely got to know each other. Um, you know, I, I just knew their names. That was pretty much it. No discussion on where we were going to go. Um, there was pretty much like one ridge that you could climb from the trailhead. So it was just kind of assumed that we would all go up there and, and ride something. None of us had been to the zone before. Um, and we just start hiking and like within an hour, I remember me and my one buddy who I did know, we were kind of hanging out in the back and we look up and these two dudes are like way ahead of us, like just gung ho. And it was, it was probably because it was way too miserable to stop and chat. Like we just wanted to keep moving. And the whole time up, you know, we're walking up this ridgeline and the winds are just stripping this snow off one side and just completely loading the other. Like one side was completely unrideable because there was no snow. And the other side was just wind load, wind load, wind load. And the whole time up the ridge, you know, we weren't in avalanche strain. We were at a high point. And the whole time I was just thinking to myself, like, okay, yeah, we're just going to go for a walk in the mountains. We're going to take our skin track back down. Like, you know, today in the mountains, you know, we're not really here to ski today. Um, and so we get to the top and we finally regroup. And uh, the two people who I don't know, we're just like, this is going to be a sweet powder. On. <laughs> and uh, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what? what are you guys talking about? Like, it's so obvious that we shouldn't, ski this right now like we have a persistent weak layer below these major wind slabs that is actively loading in front of our face um and i when i said that i i was so like taken aback by their excitement to ride this slope that i think i came across as more emotional than logical and the reaction that they had was just like who is this guy like we're gonna ski this slope like this guy's scared <laughs> um and there's like, I felt like there was nothing I could do to talk them out of it. Um, and, uh, they skied the slope, nothing happened. 
skier two dropped in, nothing happened. Um, and then my buddy who I knew skied, nothing happened. And I was like, okay, well maybe I don't know as much as I, I think I do. Nothing's happening right now. And they're skiing the slope and it looks kind of fun. And, uh, I start skiing and at that point, my buddy who was in a safe zone started moving down a little bit more to get to this uh, next bench. And all of a sudden I just feel this collapse and I look over and this avalanche is coming down the hill and, uh, didn't catch anyone. We, we made it out. Um, I kept going down. Sure enough, another collapse, another avalanche, another collapse, another avalanche. And, uh, at that point we got to this little bench safe zone. And I was like, I knew it. I, I knew this was going to happen. Like, what do we do from here? Cause we're in a bad situation. Um, we can either drop down this next bench into an area that we don't really know where it goes. We know the car is somewhere down there. Um, it's windy. There's no visibility. You know, it looks kind of steep. We have no idea. Uh, or we could traverse across this bench through avalanche terrain that we can see and get to our skin track, which is kind of like straight shot, almost with just a little bit of elevation gain, just traversing across this little slope. Um, not little, it was avalanche terrain. Uh, and so it took like convincing to get them to traverse, to get back to our skin track rather than just dropping into the unknown. Um, but we made the traverse out, nothing went wrong, got back to the skin track, took the skin track back to the car. Um, buddy who I knew hopped in the other car. They went to the bar. I wasn't invited <laughs> and uh, I went home and I was just, I thought like all night long, I was just thinking like, what happened that like, what just happened? Like I knew what was going to happen, but it didn't happen when they dropped in it happened when I dropped in. Um, and I think I learned like, yeah, just trust yourself. Uh, trust yourself. Like, especially when you're skiing with people who you don't really know. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's um, a great message to the fact that, and something that we talked about, we kind of hit on before about having a voice in the mm -hmm. group, right? And um, it's also a great learning lesson. Like, luckily you guys survived that, right? Like you guys got out of that. You made the right decisions ultimately uh, when faced with the challenges that you had oh. and you guys all survived it. And we're, you know, even though you didn't get to go to the bar, everybody did get to go <laughs> wherever they had to go to afterwards and do that um, lesson learned, right? Because mm -hmm. it's important to not only to have that voice, but the other thing that I'm getting out of that is to know your group and know your partners, man. I've been in that exact same position that, that you've been in where I've been like meeting people at the trailhead that are part of the group, 50% or more of the group, right? And then heading out in and not knowing those people. That group. Now it's yeah. been, it, uh, it, in both experiences, it was positives for me. I will say that. Um, but there was always that little bit of concern in the back of my head that I don't really know these people, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't know their abilities. And in fact, one of those tours was uh, <clears throat> a dude who didn't even have a split board. He was on snowshoes carrying a solid on his back the whole time. And um, he was on probably the cheapest set of snowshoes I'd ever seen in my life. And <laughs> he trudged through and he survived and he suffered and there was a little bit of misery, but he did it with a smile on his face the whole day. But, you know, the other thing that that guy didn't have is he didn't have any of that backcountry safety gear that we're supposed to have. Right. Um, he was the one guy in the group that didn't have that. And in retrospect, should we have done that tour that day? Is that one that where we should have said, you know, this is a no go. Mm -hmm. 
you know, because you don't have that training. And I know a lot of people would be like, well, whatever, man, you know, there's three out of four of us, 75% of us know what we're doing and we got the stuff, you know, we'll be fine. It's a mellow day. It's bluebird. Look, it's beautiful out here. Man. There's no worries. Yeah. But that's yeah. when you can get stung the most sometimes. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it's also important to realize that, um, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do in the mountains. Like right. you can always say no. And like, I knew the decision to ski that slope was wrong. And I effectively made the wrong decision knowing it was wrong because the rest of the group did it. And in my mind, I was thinking at the time, I was like, do I just go back to skin track, go back to the car and like, let them go? Like, what if there's a burial? Like, could they use an extra person? Um, yeah, your and, conscience couldn't handle that if that was the case afterwards, right? Then. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. way. And so I just, I effectively made the wrong decision knowing it was wrong. Um, but you, you never have to do anything you don't want to do. You can always right. say, Hey, you guys, I can't talk you out of what you're going to do. That's fine. You know, maybe we won't tour again, whatever, but I'm going to go back to the car. I'll see you down there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I bet that's, that's something you can, you can reflect back on when you're teaching classes too. Right. And when you got people out in the back country, you could be, you could say like, I know this because I kind of been through this before and it's important that you take that time to have that voice. I know we've spoken to a lot of people in the past on this podcast where we talked about them and their training and what was important to them about their training. And that was for a lot of people. And I, and I will admit this, it was for a lot of the women that we've talked to in the past said it was important to them to have the training so that they could have the voice when they're in the back country. And, and I kind of reflected on it and something that you and I were talking about before we started recording was that there's a stat that says, you know, you're 70% more likely to be safe in the backcountry when there's a woman in your group because they're more likely to speak up and speak their mind when they feel like something's not right. Whereas a lot of, a lot of us guys, we have that pride thing and it kind of prevents us from saying something when we feel like we need to say it, you know, like, whereas you said it in that group, but it, there was no weight given to it, you know, and, and luckily you guys all survived it. So um, yeah, great, great lesson for us all who are listening right now. And I hope you're all mm-hmm. soaking that. And the last thing I'll say about that is this, all that could have been avoided with just a trailhead conversation before we started yeah. hiking. Like, like maybe in their minds, they assumed I was stoked to ride that slope too. And they were just met with such abrasion when I was against it. Like if we had had a conversation in the morning and said, this is terrain I'm putting on red light because of such and such, you know, that all could have been avoided. Yeah. Like how um, so having feel, a dialogue. Man? Like, how do you, how do you feel about this? Right. Hey, Mac, how do you feel, man? You good about this? I'm good. You good, Mac? You good, Joe? You good, Bill? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or even like, did you get enough sleep last night? Like, right. you doing well? Yeah. Like, are you good? Yeah. 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 I didn't get my seven to nine hours. It wasn't a holiday. <laughs> in, I don't know, bro. Yeah. It's more common uh, than not. You know, I have moments and experiences like that in the backcountry. And, and as an avalanche educator, you use those as teachable moments, right? and takeaways from that and and you nailed it it was like it could have all been solved in a five-minute conversation in the parking lot Mm -hmm. and so it's and it's really important it's like if you're like generally what we do right and i'm sure you do it as well it's like you know who the group is going into the next day and there's always that one person that's going to add try to add someone and they might sneak them in or they might ask you but it's crucial to have the tools, the knowledge, the conversation, and all be on the same page. So you don't get into sticky situations like that. And yeah. And I think yeah, you're that's, not, you're not being a, a jerk for telling them no, you know? Yeah. And even if you have to be, it's like, 
you should listen to that person that is raising their voice and has the inner strength to do that and vocalize it and give them or her a moment to voice that. And you should never shut them down because that's just poor communication. And I think that goes back to like touching on like the ethics of the backcountry, you know, and it's like all in communication and, and it's indispensable to have really good communication and going into this month and going into the season, I think, you know, that's the takeaway, right? And that's Definitely. a great point, Maxwell, like backcountry ethics and not being part of it. And I mean, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause I see it a lot. I've been, you know, you've been traveling in the Wasatch for what, three, four years now, Mac, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. I've, I've had a couple decades here and, you know, I was fortunate enough to have Craig as a mentor who put me on the path early and also other really skilled mentors and teachers along that path. And, you know, and, and for me, it's like, I go back to the communication piece and it's because I will always speak up, you know, I may not ask so many questions on this podcast and I kind of sit back in the back of the room here, but you know, at the trailhead, it's a quite a different thing. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it's usually the quiet one who, when they do speak up, you know, listen, cause they've probably mm-hmm. been holding that opinion in for the last 20 minutes. And so, um, <laughs> one trick I, I usually do is if I feel like the group's moving too fast and not enough conversations going on. I'll, forcibly stop and take a fake bathroom break <laughs> yeah <laughs> no one's, uh, no one's gonna tell me no and uh it forces everyone to stop yeah that's a good one that's a good pro tip that's awesome when i did my avi one course um i'm always the oldest guy in the group anyways but when i did my avi one <laughs> course everybody was in their 20s there's a couple people maybe in their early 30s and uh we were we did all our our you know all our uh beacon training just outside the parking lot before we started doing our tour up. And I remember our guide was like, he's like, Hey man, uh, I need somebody to, to play tail guide. Like I need somebody to take up the back end and carry a radio. So I was like, right away. I'm like, dude, I'm your huckleberry, man. I'm always the slowest <laughs> guy in the pack. I'll take, like, give me that radio. Like, don't worry about me. You guys, you might be five, 10 minutes ahead of me, but I will get there, man. I'm always the slowest guy, but I will get there without fail. You know? And I think, it was interesting how that day went for us because the first half of the day, um, when we started going up before we started digging pits on the aspect, everybody was fucking hard charging, man. Like, let me show this guy like how badass I am, you know? And I was like, go ahead, man, just, just do your thing and have your fun. Right. And then we stopped and we dug our pits and we ate our lunch and then we continued up a, a couple pitches before we dropped in. And then, Next thing you know, like there's dudes holding me back, right? Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm waiting for them because my role was tail guide, right? Like I'm, I gotta be the guy in the back. So these guys were just having a hard time and you know, Maxwell, I love, and I'm going to drop out. This is Maxwell's pro tip, you guys. But one of the things he loves to do when he's on the trail is leave little treats sometimes for people who are on the skin track, right? Like <laughs> drop a bag of gummies here and there for somebody and something like that. That's something that I love to always have in my pocket when I'm on the skin track is to have some gummies in my pocket when I'm feeling a little down or I'm feeling like, really, there's another concave that I got to go over. We're not at the top yet. And I need that little boost, that little pick me up. It's usually like a sour cherry gummy or something like that, that I throw in my mouth that keeps me going. Mm-hmm. And that day I was just handing them off to these dudes. Like, come on guys, what the fuck were you up all <laughs> night? Like, were you partying? Like, you know, like <laughs> why aren't you guys making it up here? I'm the old man and you're holding me back right now. Like, let's go. <laughs> it's interesting how the dynamics go in a group like that. 
sometimes. And so I love how you just touched on that little thing that happened around Easter. Uh, but it, it leads me to think like, okay, so Mac, like what do you choose to hydrate with and what kind of snacks do you put in your pack? <laughs> uh, help, good old help. water. Yeah. Okay. Good old water. Drink water. Everyone's got to drink water. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, like chugging water as I'm driving up to the trailhead. And normally I'll just bring a little Nalgene in my bag. And oftentimes I won't even touch it. I just super hydrate <laughs> ahead of time. Um, snacks. I love Gushers, to be honest. Like, I don't know what it is. I, I'm not a sweets guy. Like I never eat candy other than when I'm on the trail. But Gushers and uh, just uh, some Kind Bars usually do the trick. Oh, my buddy actually... He brings uh, like bone broth and mytho, miso soup, and I think I'm going to start doing that this year. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been nice liquids. today. Yeah. Yeah, because like standing around in class, that's like essential for the classes I've stood around in, either I'm instructing or, or learning from. It's like you got to have that hot liquid in between yeah. those cold it, hands. It's, yeah. it's like instant warm-up too. As yeah, as it's a mood changer. Yeah. Cool. So we did uh, have a, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, we did have a, someone bring a full fondue set uh, in an avalanche <laughs> course last year, which was pretty cool to see. Oh, I wish <laughs> I was there. I love the fondue. I know some people who would do that too. <laughs> and were they dumping their kind, like the kind bars into the fondue or did they bring the bread? Oh, that would have been great. They had, they had some bread, but kind bar in there would have been fantastic. Mm. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. I love that. Uh, yeah, charcuterie on the uh, on the Avi shovel too works really well <laughs> sometimes too. Yeah, as well. Yeah, flip the board over, cheese plate, yeah, yeah. charcuterie. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's a pro. Get a little wax, get a little fluoro in your uh, in your <laughs> cheese plate, buddy. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, you lo- so the Nalgene in your pack, like you'll carry a small Nalgene of water in your pack, is how you like to to carry that water. Is there anything unique? to McKinley. Is there anything unique to McKinley that's in your pack? Like that nobody, like the gushers. Okay. That's one thing, you know, but <laughs> is there, is there anything else? Like, do you, do you carry like, I get, yeah, you do carry an in reach. Uh, I do. If I, yeah, if I'm going out with clients or a class or a place where I know I don't have uh, service, I, I got my in reach after that incident in Montana where we didn't have cell service and we needed it. Oh yeah. Um, uh, I think I'm a real big fan of a hard compass and a physical avalanche inclinometer or a slope inclinometer. Um, and those two things like always live in my uh, belt strap of my backpack. There's a little pocket right there. that sits right on the front of my body. Um, and I just constantly have that thing out all day, just checking aspects, checking slope angles. I I'm really bad at guessing slope angles. Um, like, and no matter how hard I try, I seem to never nail it down to within like two or three degrees, which I don't, I, I don't know how many people can do that anyway. But, um, so I'm constantly like putting a pole on a slope, taking a guess and then putting my slope inclinometer on it and kind of assessing. And just, I, I always just love being aware of like what direction I'm moving in. So that's why I carry a hard compass. Sure. Um, yeah. Especially so like, in the Wasatch. Plays a big hard role. compass, good old compass, just pulling it out and seeing which direction you're heading in and mm-hmm Excellent. yeah that's a great point that's a great point man uh yeah i'm i might 
I got those pockets on my pack. (laughs) I might fill them with those instead of hand warmers from now on. Well, there's one for gummies. That's for sure. They're always going to have a place in my pack. I'm going to go to the convenience store. I look for those gushers now. I got to figure out what those are. (laughs) Give them a try. It's like instant energy. Cool. So, um, I'm, I'm going to go back to your bio and another question. And this was a great question and I love this question. I love your answer to it. So I'm just going to ask it directly off this. Uh, what is an important aspect of your life outside of splitboarding that you would like to share with the listeners? Mm. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our patience for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I love what you said. I love what, how you applied that. So that's why I wanted to ask that question directly like that. And I don't mind that I'm reading it right off the sheet, but yeah. Yeah. So I think like patience plays a big role in happiness, I think. And like nothing is ever just like handed to you. Right. That makes you happy. You have to work for it. And it seems like more and more, maybe it was after COVID, maybe it's been, you know, for the last 10 years, I don't know, but it seems like everyone kind of demands this instant gratification and uh it's created this like like if i don't get what i want i'm not happy kind of kind of mentality that i see a lot nowadays and i think working for things and gaining them provides so much happiness and like fulfillment in your life just having that patience to wait and work on things and um really earn it is like what you can really get like true happiness out of and I always admire my dad. He's like the most patient person ever. He had four, you know, four crazy kids. Um, and he's never lost his temper. Never heard him scream once. Um, and I, I've always kind of admired that. And I had a couple of years ago, I, I broke uh, my leg pretty bad. It was my tibial plateau. Like the worst kind of, fra- it was like class six. Like the stuff you see of people like falling down elevator shafts where like they're not walking again. Um, it was on a rail actually. And I don't touch the park anymore, but, (laughs) um, but I spent three months on the couch, like non weight bearing, like crutches three months on my mom's couch. Um, just like miserable, miserable. And, uh, I was like forced to realize that if you're only thinking about the end goal, you're going to be unhappy for these, you know, next eight months to recover, to get back to snowboarding. Um, so just take it a day at a time. Like, Tomorrow, go for another two degrees of flexibility. You know, go for another 10 pounds of the leg lift. Um, and it passed the time. And I was happy throughout the whole thing because I was seeing progress. You know, I was just focusing on small things. And eight months later, when I was able to get on my board, it just felt like so great. Like thinking back to when I was sitting on that couch, really kind of in the depths of my mind, like uh, just brought so much happiness. <laughs> and uh, it's the same with snowboarding. Like if you just have your eyes set on a line and you go tag it the first try, like how much more fun would it be if, you know, you really put in the work, you waited for that right day to hit it. You know, you went up there, assessed the snow, got a view of what the terrain was and then nailed it when it was perfect. Like that just, that's what it's all about. And I think if everyone had just a little bit more patience in the world and recognize that, you know, not everything is just going to be handed to you. Um, I think everyone would be a lot more happier. Absolutely. That's a great, that's great advice. It's, and when you were talking about that, it's like, I reflect upon like Robert Greene's book of mastery. And it was like, when I was reading that, it was, it takes 10 years as an apprentice 
to get up to that level to where you can now turn the corner and actually do the job. But you're Mm -hmm. still not even moving into mastery yet at that stage. And so to think if like anything you did, you had to put so many hours in dedicating yourself with the time to get to a point to where you could actually just start. And, and I think that's like anything with like entering the mountains, right? Like it's with anything, it's like, you just slow down, have patience with yourself, have patience with the people around you. It's like, everyone's in such a rush. Everyone's digesting things at such a rapid rate these days that we don't take the time. And, and I totally agree with you. Have patience, take the time. Don't be in a rush. Definitely. And humility. Yeah. yeah. And humility. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Arrogance doesn't get you far in a group when you're out there like that. That's for sure. <laughs> it's not going to, it's not going to help a lot. And the backcountry community is pretty good at seeing right through arrogance too. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. You get weeded out pretty quick. <laughs> That's awesome. Dude, this has been great, man. I'm so stoked. I'm, this has been a great podcast. This, this is, feels like the old jad, like the old vibe that we, uh, um, that we always had, man. I'm really loving this. I'm, I'm loving this conversation with you. And, and I hate to see it end, man. I hate to see it end. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's opportunity to revisit and, and pick, up, uh, pick up on some other aspects of what McKinley Talty is after and what he's doing. You know, uh, really appreciative for you coming on and sharing your story and, and all that with us, man. And what you're doing, I love what you guys are doing at the Utah Avi Center, man. It's so... Say it. Say it. I had to hold it back. It's fucking <laughs> awesome, man. It is. It's appropriate. Because they always are. dropping those F-bombs all over the place. I know it's a Canadian <laughs> thing, maybe. But, but we also say sorry a lot. So there you go. <laughs> we make up for it. But, uh, but yeah, man. I love it. I love it. Craig... You know, like I couldn't say enough good things about Craig Gordon too, man. He was such an awesome dude to talk to. And I love that guy's energy. And I love his his character, (laughs) man. It's just like, I remember the first time we were thinking about talking to him. I'm like, Chad, have you seen that guy, man? (laughs) (laughs) I always get asked whenever people see the little Utah Avalanche Center patch, like, do you work with the guy who's got the man bun? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. You see that dude with his shirt off and you know his age and how ripped that guy is. And you're like, Jesus, man, that guy is just insane, man. He's out there. That's great. It's peak fitness. A, I think you got a man crush, Darren. <laughs> I, I might. I might. I just might. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Craig's great. awesome. Cool, man. Hey, uh, well, I don't know, Maxwell, do you have anything else for Mac? Or I mean, I mean. No, man. I think we could keep going and going. But it, like we're almost at an hour 40 here and Mac's been out in the snow all day, so. Yeah, sure he wants to get some dinner and get some sleep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll let you do that, Mac. Uh, hey, before I let you go, though, I'm kind of curious. I can see behind you on the wall those those maps. What are is oh, that yeah. the Wasatch behind you there? Yeah, we got uh, the Wasatch right there, and I usually like to keep track of where I I've skied before, so you see a bunch of little squiggly lines on there. Um, Sweet. I'm a big fan of maps. I got a lot of them posted up around my room. Yeah, I figured that out when you talked about having a hard compass in your pocket. There's that's kind of old school, man. Not a lot of people are carrying hard compasses in your pocket. Yeah, you know, I've great. got some. I've got a friend who's been working on guiding and learning how to use maps and all that good stuff, and it's pretty awesome to uh, 
to see all my map experience and compass experience was uh underwater and uh very straight lines <laughs> not having to work up and around rough terrain so pretty cool but that's awesome man love to see it very cool well hey mac dude super cool to meet you super cool to hear your story and and what's going on look forward to maybe one day meeting you in person and and uh maybe being humbled by your skills out in the backcountry i'd love to uh i'd love to learn with you out in the backcountry <laughs> i think that would be awesome man thanks uh, yeah i really appreciate you you having me on and yeah if you ever come down to utah just give me a shout anytime you know it's gonna happen <laughs> so speaking of shout outs let's uh let's wrap her up with some shout outs to whoever you want to talk about equipment yeah i'd say um utahavalentcenter.org if you're if you're in the utah uh great state of utah and you're going backcountry skiing check the forecast um, we got them for lots of different mountain ranges around the state um if you're interested in learning more about the no before you go program check out kbyg.org there's just like endless information on there um tons of ways to continue your learning in addition to our our online learning content and, and more information um and yeah, I just want to give a, a big shout out to to a couple of great like Salt Lake companies. It's really cool to see companies in Salt Lake that really care about the community, and um, they're not just a company; they're like a community, literally. Um, and Cardiff does a great job, and and Wonder, um, just two awesome, awesome places, and great team of people behind it that are really, really care about the backcountry community. So, um, just wanted to give them a shout out. And we'll put the links on the uh, the page as well. So if you couldn't write those down fast enough, everybody will will have them there where you can click through and get educated. Yeah, because that's what it's all about going into December, getting the knowledge, getting the education, and practicing those skills. Is got to prep. It's going to be a great season. I can feel it, dude. It is <laughs> all gonna over the be west. A great it's be a season. Good one. <laughs> if it keeps going like this, man, it could be one for the books. That's for sure. I hope it's great up here in the great frozen North, man. <laughs> cool. All right, fellas. Well, I guess that's a wrap. Mac, thanks again for being on. Love it. Maxwell, thank you. And, thank you, Darren. Uh, yeah, thank you, man. Yeah, and, thanks to uh, both of you. Yeah, buddy. To Good. our lucky winner today who won that snowboard. Yeah. Ooh. Andy. Andy Gooch. Congrats. Yeah. Uh, Gonna have a goat. To roam in the hills on. Love it. Sweet. Ride the gun board. All right, Mac. Maxwell, peace. All right. Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Maxwell. You're welcome, buddy. See you on the skin track. Yes, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to McKinley for taking the time to talk with us. To learn more about McKinley, be sure to check out the show notes and visit his socials. As always, if you're loving the podcast, then be sure to hit the subscribe button, drop us a review, and share it with your crew. Also, visit our website at www.darkstarts.ca and follow us on Instagram at darkstarts.podcast. Maxwell and I want to give a special thanks to the Dark Starts team for helping to make all of this happen. Stay safe out there, all. Peace. Peace.